Unexpected Jesus. We just, uh, we just sung about fix my heart to yours, ready for the unexpected, ready for what you will do next. We have been in a series looking throughout the life of Jesus at those unexpected moments. And today is another uh, event in the life of Jesus that is captured in the Gospels that points out something that is unexpected. Today, the title of our sermon is Unexpected Look. Unexpected Look. You've heard the story read. Let's just walk through it. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And uh, it says that uh, Jesus and his disciples are passing through Jericho to head to Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is uh, here, and then Jerusalem is here. So they were heading southwest to get to uh, Jerusalem. It's about 17 to 18 miles, and it was time for the Passover. And that was the largest of all the feasts that the Jews would celebrate. And so people would come from all over, and they would all gather in Jerusalem. So you've got people traveling from everywhere, and they get to the city of Jericho, and then they're flowing through Jericho, and they're heading up to Jerusalem. And so while they're walking through there, we're introduced to a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Well, we know he's Jewish because that name, Zacchaeus, is a Hebrew name. They also tell us what he does for a living, and it says that he is the chief tax collector, the chief tax collector. So when you're the chief tax collector, that means that you have responsibility over all the other tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew, were not loved people among the Jews. What would happen is the Romans would bid out this job of tax collector, and whoever got the highest bid would then take money, they'd pay it to the Roman government, and then they'd go back to their own people, and they would levy taxes on them. And sometimes they would do it unfairly so they could make more money. And so as they made more money, then you realize that the chief tax collector would make more money. So everything was kind of flowing up, uh, up to him. And so as the chief tax collector in town, it also here in the passage said that he was rich. Well, yeah, but the money that he gained, it was ill-gotten gain. It was on the backs of all of his own people there. And so here is a man, Zacchaeus, because he's a tax collector, he was pretty well hated. He was vilified. Uh, none of the religious people liked him. He's excommunicated from the church, and, uh, but he's making a lot of money, and he's um, kind of taking care of all his other tax collectors, and he's there in a nice city there in Jericho. And it also pointed out that he was short in stature. He was short in stature. So he's a short guy, but he's also a guy who has got really a lot of spunk and a lot of persistency. Because it says that he wanted to see this parade that was passing by, and he knew he couldn't see over the people, so he runs to get up in a tree and to sit on a limb so that he could see others, so he could see Jesus as he comes by. So you've got this parade of people coming from the past, coming to the Passover, coming through Jericho, heading out to Jerusalem. And so as this parade is going, he would really like to see Jesus. That's all it says. He'd like to see Jesus. Now, when I thought about that, the first time I read this, I kept going over and over about that he wanted to see Jesus. It kind of surprised me. Because you're a tax collector, all the religious people don't like you. They don't even let you come to church. So now all of a sudden, there's this religious teacher, this itinerant teacher is going to pass through town, and he wants to see Jesus. Now, why would he want to see Jesus? Because most likely, everybody would tell him that Jesus is going to reject you just like every other religious leader. So what was it that he thought about this Jesus 
that he needed to at least see him. He was enthralled with him. Well, I'm going to give you two reasons why I think he was enthralled with him. Number one, Jesus had an in, a band of followers, 12 guys, and one of them was the name of Matthew, who was a tax collector in Capernaum. And when Jesus walked by, he says, I want you to come and follow me. He got up, he left his business as a tax collector, and he went and joined with Jesus. So this Jesus brings a tax collector into his inner circle. This is, this is kind of different. This is different than any other religious leader. And the second thing is when people would describe Jesus, this will be like a question. Some of you might be able to help me with this uh, answer. Those that tried to deride Jesus, they were disparaging him, they would make a statement and they would say, oh, that Jesus, he's a friend of what? Tax collectors and sinners. And they would say that to be real di di divisive. And they would say, hey, he's friends of tax collectors and sinners. And a lot of the religious people go, ooh. But it's good news for who? The tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> That's kind of good. <laughs> They're over there. Can you believe he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners? If I'm a tax collector, I'm looking over here going, That's a great deal. So he is. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I got to see this guy. He's got a tax collector in his inner circle, and he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think this makes pretty good sense. Well, you know, when you think about that, it kind of helped me remember or, or kind of put together just the way life runs is that we as believers, we are Jesus' representative. And as we're Jesus' representative, we make the gospel attractive by how we treat others and especially treat those that are shunned by the crowd. Because people aren't going to be able to physically see Jesus, but they will see the followers of Jesus. And so what would make someone stop and say, I would like to learn more about the gospel? How do you make the gospel more attractive? You make it more attractive by how you handle the crowd or the people that the crowds shun. So, for instance, if you're a, a student in school, um, you know, the question is, is, is how do you handle that student who's sort of the punching bag for criticism? To where everybody likes to make fun of that student face-to-face, -face, and then uh, that's when they're at school. Then when they're out of school, they do it online. And it's constantly criticizing someone, sort of that punching bag kid. How are you going to treat him? Are you going to be any different towards him? What about those people that are in your office? The ones that are just kind of different from you and different from the others. Their personality may be kind of quirky. Maybe their, their learning ability is not as strong as some of the others. Maybe they're a different race. Maybe a different socioeconomic status. And yet there's some people in the business that seem to shun those people. And so what do you do as you're carrying the gospel of Christ? Would they look at you and say, well, you're a friend of those that are being shunned by others? What happens when the marginalized of society, the down and out, and we pass by them? Is the gospel real to them? Does it look attractive to them because of the way that you treat them? And what about the up and out? We talk so much about the down and out. What about the up and out? This is Zacchaeus. He's the up and out. He's wealthy. He, he's got, he's got uh, riches, got probably one of the biggest houses in town, but he is lost as can be. What about the up and out? And so when I, when I looked, about, looked at this, I started thinking, we are those representatives of Jesus, and how we handle those that are being shunned by others will oftentimes make the gospel attractive to them 
and give us the opportunity to share with them. So he was attracted to just to see who Jesus was. And so in verse 4, it says that he ran ahead of the crowd, and, uh, and he got up in a sycamore tree. Now, he didn't have any close Jewish friends that would let him be first in line, so he knew where the parade was coming, so he ran, and he got to a sycamore tree. Now, during that day, they would plant sycamore trees along the road so that it could provide shade, because they were big trees that would spread out like this, but they also had these big limbs, and especially lower limbs, easy, great climbing tree. As a kid, you'd love this. So you climb up on that tree, and there's a big limb that you could hang out on. And since it goes over the road, it gives you perfect view to be able to sit here, and then the people pass by like this. And so that's what Zacchaeus did. He said, I'm going to see this Jesus. He's passing through. I'm going to give it a shot over there. Well, then you come to verse 5, and you get to verse 5, and, and it says that when Jesus got to the, came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I'm going to stay at your house today. He just didn't take a look and said, hey, fella. He said, hey, Zacchaeus. He knew his name. Whoa. Not only did he know his name, but out of all the people in Jericho, Jesus says, I'm going to spend the day with you. I'm going to stay at your house. Now, in the Middle East during that day, hospitality was paramount. It was the ultimate, because if you ever had someone in your house, it showed this oneness, this connection with them. And if you had a person that was of honor, and they said, I want to have fellowship at your house, I want to eat a meal with you, it doesn't get much better than that. And so the most famous man on that Passover parade stops, looks at him, calls his name and says, I want you to come down. He says, you got to hurry because I want to come and have a meal with you today. And he said, hurry. You know why I had to hurry? This is Jesus' last stop. He was heading toward Jerusalem. He was heading to the cross. He wasn't going to be circling back to Jericho anymore. This is it. It's got to happen today. And it may never happen again. Well, pretty interesting what his response was in verse 6. Uh, he says, so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. Well, that's an understatement. <laughs> Man, he hurried down, no hesitation, and he received him joyfully. I'm so excited. He's just happy that somebody be friendly to him. <laughs> he says, you can come to my house. I am so excited. Come on. I'm going to take you over to my house over there. And uh, you get to spend, spend time with me. I can't tell you how excited I am. Now, as Jesus is going in the crowd, you realize he's got his 12 disciples that are following with him. And now all of a sudden, Jesus looks up and he says, hey, we've got to change the lunch plans. Uh, we're going to Zacchaeus' house. And they say, okay, oh, Zacchaeus. All I could do was think about those disciples. They've been with Jesus for about three years. And uh, he kind of steps outside the boundaries, you know? And he gets with these tax collectors, gets with these sinners that everyone else says he shouldn't get with. And I'm just thinking that some of the disciples, as soon as Jesus invited himself to have lunch at his house, I can see one or two of them go, here he goes again. Here he goes again. And I, I thought about that and I said, wouldn't I love my life to be lived in such a way that whenever there was a person that I intersected with who was lost, that my first response would be to tell them about Jesus. And that my family and my staff and my friends would go, well, there goes Danny again. Don't you wish that was true? Don't you wish that was true for all of us? To where the response would be, hey, here he goes. He's going to share his faith again. That's the way we should be. And that's what Jesus was. He says, hey, come on down. Well, when he asked him to come on down, verse 7 we got a little bit of a negative reaction from the crowd. Verse 7 says this. It says that when they saw it, 
They all grumbled. This is all the crowd. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They were shocked. Now, all these people are going on their way to Jerusalem. Many people are spiritually strong. In Jericho itself, there were Levites, there were priests, there were all kind of holy people that he could have had a wonderful meal with and enjoyed sitting down and talking about the Scriptures. But he picked the vilest, most hated man in the city, and he called him out, and he said, Zacchaeus, we're going to have lunch today with you. And people chapped. They got all upset. And so the people grumbled, they mumbled, said, I can't believe uh, him. There's some people that are probably saying, why not me? I can't believe he didn't go with the more spiritual guys, and he goes with the worst guy there. Well, he has a meal with him. Whenever you have a meal, they would recline at their meals. And when the meal was over, in verse 8, this is what he says. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So that means they've had lunch, they've had conversation, Jesus has talked to him, and when the meal is over, all of a sudden, he stood up. And this short man who was leaning against a a tree branch is now standing strong in front of the Son of God, making a commitment to him. And he said, bottom line, I've heard what you said. I understand what's been wrong in my heart. I'm ready to follow you. And then he says, I will give half of everything I've got to the poor, and then if I've defrauded anybody, four times. I will make restitution. And Jesus' response in verse 9 says this. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. Today, salvation has come to this house. I want us to look at two things. First thing I want us to look at is salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house. What does that mean? What does that mean when he says salvation has come to this house? Let me tell you what salvation is. Number one, it's conviction of sin. It's conviction of sin. It is that we have to get to a point to where we understand that we have sinned. We've done things that are wrong. And because of the things that we've done wrong, it has separated us from God. And I have to get that understanding that there is a holy God and I am sinful And what I'm doing in my life has separated me from God. But then there's a second, and that's the confession of sin. There's one thing to be convicted of sin. There's another thing to confess sin. Conviction of sin oftentimes says, yeah, I feel bad. Confession of sin says, I know I've done bad. And you confess your sin, and you seek repentance. You repent. You confess your sin. You seek forgiveness through your repentance. So you repent. And you say, oh, God, I'm Uh, I repent of my sins. I don't want to live like this anymore. I was heading in this direction. I want to head in another direction. So there's conviction of sin, and then there's a confession of sin. And then there's a call to Jesus as Lord, to where you get to the point that you know you've done wrong, you've confessed that you've done wrong, and you look to Jesus and you said, I'm calling on you to be my Lord. And I recognize you are Lord. Because you see, just a few days from this Uh, this meeting, Jesus will go to a cross. And when he goes to the cross, he will die for the sins of all mankind. He'll die for Zacchaeus' sins, for your sins and my sins. He will pay that penalty. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. Jesus goes to the cross, he takes our sins, and he dies for us. 
And then they take his body down, and they take his body down from the cross after six hours, and, and this dead body is then wrapped up, placed into a tomb, and then three days later, he raises from the dead. And when he raises from the dead, it shows that he is stronger than death, and he's stronger than sin, and he's conquered these. And he provides us a way to come into a relationship with God. He provides us this way to be adopted into the family of God. And so what we do is we understand this is what he's doing. So we call to Jesus as Lord. And then number four is you commit your life to Jesus. This is what salvation is. I commit my life to Jesus. So what I've done, I've got this conviction of sin. And then I confess that sin. I repent of that sin. I call to Jesus as Lord. And then I commit my life to him. And I say, I accept your gift of sacrifice. I accept this gift of grace that you're giving me, what's called salvation. And then the fifth thing is this changed life, changed life. Now, oftentimes we do the first four and we keep forgetting that the fifth needs to take place, but if Jesus truly comes into your life, it means his Holy Spirit comes in and all of a sudden things change. You get a whole different worldview. You get a different uh, way of looking at things and seeing things and, and treating other people. And all of a sudden there's some changes. There's a statement that is made. It says, Jesus accepts you just the way you are, but he will not leave you where you were. Jesus will accept you just the way you are, but he will not leave you like you were. You see, when he says he accepts you just the way you are, you don't have to clean up your act to come to Jesus. You just recognize that, that I'm a sinner. And when you recognize that and you accept his lordship, you ask him to come into your life, and he says, I will accept you just as you are. Billy Graham crusade, every invitation to him, they sing, that song was just as I am. Just as I am. I come to him just as I am. But then once he comes into your life, he doesn't leave you the way you are. He changes you and changes you for the better. And, and he begins to see this transformation process take place in your life. And so... When he makes that statement, today salvation is coming to this house. Salvation came into this house because Zacchaeus, he recognized who Jesus was, but then he also took that next step and he said, there's going to be a change in my life. And he made these changes. These changes didn't save him. These changes were evidence of his salvation. And let me just give you three evidences that came out from just Zacchaeus' life. When he saw, when he met Christ, number one, there was generosity through giving. Generosity through giving. This man was completely changed. Now, what's interesting, this is chapter 19 in the book of Luke. If you turn back one chapter, in chapter 18, there's a story of a rich young ruler. Now, there was a rich young ruler, it was a young guy that came up to Jesus and everybody loved him. Everybody loved him. Everybody wanted him to be a part of their team. Morally, he was the kind of guy that you want your daughter to marry. I mean, he had it all. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, uh, tell me about um, uh, what I need to do to be saved. And uh, Jesus talks about these commandments and he says, oh, I've kept every one of those since I was youth. I've done all of that. So there's got to be more. Tell me, what more is there that I need to do? And so Jesus looked at him, and he said, well, I'll tell you what you can do. Um, he says, why don't you sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me? And he said, say that again. Everything you have, I know you're wealthy, but take it all. Sell it, give it to the poor, and then you come follow me. And it said, and the man walked away saddened because he had so much. 
And then Jesus looked and he said, it is harder you know, for a rich man to enter into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he said, it's so difficult for rich people to get into heaven. And now sometimes people will look at that and they say, oh, it's just for the rich and just for the poor or, and not for the poor. No, it's for all of us. Because what it means is his finances, his material goods were his God. And he wasn't going to part with that. What heaven had to offer was not as great as what the earth had to offer for him. And so because of that, he said, I'm not willing to turn loose of what I have in order to follow you and to go to heaven. What I'm going to do is just hold on to the things that I have. And it's because sometimes when we have more things, it makes it more difficult because we build our lives around those more things. And we have a tendency to worship our riches and place our hopes in that God rather than in this God. And you go one chapter later and you meet a guy named Zacchaeus. Morally, he was destitute. Nobody liked this guy. And Jesus comes and meets with him and he gives him some of the same talk he probably gave to that rich young ruler. And out of the overflow, all of a sudden he stands up and he says, tell you what I'm going to do. My life has changed. I see things differently. I want to follow you. I want to follow God. And there's nothing that's going to stand in my way. And I want to move forward with you. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. And he, this is what he agreed to do. I mean, he just came up with this suggestion. And he said, I'm going to give half of everything I've got to the poor. I take everything, I, half of everything I've got. We've got so many poor people, so many needs over here. I can take half of everything. I'm going to give it to the poor. And then he comes back and says, and even in the Talmud, written there during the Old Testament days, it said that a generous person gives 20%. He said, forget that, I'm going 50%. Then all of a sudden he comes up and says, listen, if I've defrauded anyone, do you think a tax collector has defrauded anyone? <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> just kidding. I'm talking about during that day. And he said, if I've defrauded anyone, well, yeah, you know that then what I will do, I'll make restitution four times. Four times I'm going to make restitution to them. I'm going to give back what they've done, what they've given. Uh, just to just give you an illustration. If he had a million dollars of net worth, the first thing he did was he took $500,000 and he gave it to the poor. So if I had a million and I gave away 500000 how much money do I have now? 500,000, quick, quick. See, we lost an hour of sleep, and my job is to help you kind of get that mind going. For you young people, get you ready for tomorrow, okay? Got to get that mind going. Got school coming up. All right, so we got 500,000. Then he goes back to his books, and he realizes he's defrauded people of 100,000. And he's going to do four times of that. So how much money would that be? 400,000. So he had 500,000. He just gave away 400,000. So how much is, it, is his net worth now? It's 100,000. You can find that in the book of Luke, chapter 20. No, that's, that's just an illustration. I mean, that's pretty big. I've gone from a million-dollar net worth. Now I'm all the way down to $100,000, just as an illustration. But he gives up and volunteers to do that. And he says, hey, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Give half to the poor and then do the 40% here. Now listen, the 400%. The difference in Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler is that he understood his lostness. And once he found Christ, the things of this world did not hold the same attraction. What Jesus and heaven had to offer was greater than what this world could provide. 
So he made the appropriate restitution for the wrongs, and then he embarked on a new, generous, giving approach to life. Faith in Jesus Christ is not a mental exercise. It's a change of worldview. It's a change of your life. It's not checking a box. It's not just walking in the baptistry. It is the fact that God's spirit comes to live within you, and when he lives within you, he changes you. Now, he saw the world differently. He lived his life differently. He had a spirit of generosity. Let me be really clear to you on this. Generosity is not the means to salvation, but it is an evidence of salvation. It's not a means to salvation. People can't just give money and strike checks and say, hey, I'm saved. But what it is, it's an evidence of salvation. It's an evidence that God has done a work in your life. You go all the way back in the Old Testament, at the very beginning in those early books, God says the first tenth is holy and to be set aside for me. And so in an agrarian uh, um, community, as people are, are, are gathering up their crops, he says, you take the first fruits, take the first fruits, and you give that to God. You take the first fruits and give it to God. It talks about in the Bible that the tenth is the Lord's. Same thing for us. When we get our paychecks and whatever money that we make, God's word says that first tenth is set aside for him. Now, I just want to let you know, that first tenth is his. Now, whether you give it to him or not is your call. And you got to deal with that later on. But it is his. It says in the Bible. It's real clear. So, so to me, it's like no question when it comes to tithing. And I didn't have to go in the ministry to do this. I knew this as a teenager. I understood as a teenager. When I got my first little check and somebody paid me $100 for digging a drainage ditch over there when I was 14 years old, I took $10 and gave it to the church. It was just that easy. And so it says that the tithe is to the Lord, but then as we give that 10%, then we look to God and we say, God, here's the 90%, and I want you to use it as you see fit. And that's where the generosity comes in. You may give over and above to your church. You may give over and above to other ministries. You may give over and above to charitable organizations. You may give over and above to other individuals that are in need. That's yours, but that's between that's you and God working together saying, I want to have that generous spirit. And I believe if God truly saves someone, he takes away the stinginess and puts in generosity. And you do it because you want to do it. Uh, there was a gentleman, he and his wife in our church a number of years ago, uh, they were from another country that uh, had just an amazing story. And what he wanted to do was to complete a seminary education. And so we started an education uh, at, at a seminary. It was kind of, it was in our, in our uh, southeast region over here. And then all of a sudden, because of some visa situations and other things, and, and his wife, they had to move out to the West Coast. And, uh, and it kind of messed his school up. And because of the way his visa was, he couldn't work and earn money. And, oh, it's just, I mean, he just got hit obstacle after obstacle. And he contacted me and he said, you know, I'm trying to get in on the online with the seminary to try to complete this. And uh, he says, you know, can the church help me with tuition or something like that? And, you know, I knew this man. I'd prayed with him. And, you know, when he said that, I said, I'm not going to ask to try to find a way there. I'm just going to do it. So I just wrote him a check. And I said, I'll cover your seminary, and here's extra money to cover with your books. And... Uh, didn't feel like I needed to ask anyone else. So this is it. I'll do this. Send it to him. Now, this is where we step into, I don't want you to think that this is health and wealth gospel, okay? <laughs> we don't give to get, but I will tell you this, God is always faithful. And uh, I had no thought. I just said, this needs to happen. The next week, <laughs> I, get, I get in the mail, I open it up. It's a rebate check from insurance company that I had no idea was coming, and it was 80% of the amount I wrote him a check on. 
And it was almost like God says, is 80% going to be okay for you, Danny? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even expecting anything on there. But what I'm telling you is we need to have just this heart of generosity that if God places something on your heart, you need to run with that. And here is Zacchaeus. I mean, this is a huge financial commitment he's making. And he's saying to Jesus, my life has changed. I'm going to change the way I do business over here. And so there's going to be generosity, and it comes through giving. Let me tell you the second thing. That's fresh start. Salvation, when it changes your life, it means you have a fresh start. You admit you're wrong. You ask for forgiveness. You try to make restitution, for the, uh, and all these things are the ingredients for the fresh start. Because, you know, he's sitting there saying, I have done wrong. Will you forgive me? I'm going to make restitution. I'm going to start, start it over. I'm going to do things different. I'm going to do my business different. And for some of you here, here today, it's that fresh start that needs to take place with salvation. And for you, it could be that relationship of where there's this tension there, and you need to be asking forgiveness of someone. Or maybe it is you even receiving forgiveness to where somebody's tried to say, will you forgive me? And you're saying no. Some fresh starts that need to take place. And for him, this is a whole new ball game. It's a fresh start. I'm going to do things different. And then the third is the ripple effect. And we will never know this till we get to heaven, the ripple effect. All right, just put your minds out there with me on this one. Zacchaeus, chief tax collector in Jericho, he changes. Christ comes into his heart, he's going to live for God. As he lives for God, he's going to change his business practice. Now, what is he going to say to the tax collectors that are under him? What's he going to say to them? Is he going to say business as usual, guys, or what? You think he's going to change? You tell me. Yeah. Because he, he sees things differently now. He says, you know what? We've been ripping these folks off. We're not going to do that anymore. That's going to change. So if that changes, what happens to the people? Well, guess what happens to the people? They get to keep more of the money that they made. <laughs> it's a novel idea, isn't it? Is that uh, they made this money, and all of a sudden, they said, this is the first tax cut in history that we see right here. He said, we're going to let you keep more of your hard-earned money, and uh, we're going to tax you on what needs to be taxed, but we're not going to gouge you. So all of a sudden, these people have got a little bit more money, and all of a sudden, uh, their standard of living increases on there. So their standard of living is increasing, and then guess what? He took 50% and he gave it to the poor. Oh, my gosh. That's a great amount of money. So all of a sudden, you've got people out there who are just going hand-to-mouth to where all of a sudden some funds have come in there, and made, life is made better for them. And when he gives that initial gift, there will there be other people that will step up and they will see that, that philanthropic work that he's doing, and they want to be a part of it too. Now all of a sudden, you begin to change your whole community, begins to look out with more generous eyes. And all of these things begin to happen, all because of one person's life. Can you see that? Could you see that happening? Yes, that could happen. And it can happen in your family. With that dad stepping up and saying, I'm going to get serious about my walk with Christ, and I'm going to be that spiritual leader. What is the impact it will have on your wife? What is the impact it will have on your kids? What about when you sit there and say, I'm going to be committed to this marriage, and both the husband and the wife talk about this and say, we're going to be strong in our marriage, and we say, we're going to be one on that, and then when our children, we're going to model for them what it's like for a husband and wife to do it the way the Bible talks about as to where there is the, the wife loving her husband, her husband loving her wife, and all of these things go into that. 
What happens to you as a business person, as a male or a female there in your office, the office that you lead, that you use biblical principles? And then your other people that work in under you begin to see that, and then they treat their people even better. It's just a ripple effect, and that's what the gospel does. And so with Zacchaeus, this was huge. And Jesus stands up and he says, salvation has come to this house. What an impact. Let me close with this. Verse 10 says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' purpose is to seek and save the lost. He said, Zacchaeus, this is what I do. (laughs) I've come to seek and to save the lost. Verse 5, I love verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Jesus' purpose, seek and save the lost, there's two things you'll see. Number one is the place, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, when Jesus came to the place, Jesus is on the road, and he's walking through Jericho towards Jerusalem. He's walking to Jerusalem. There's sycamore trees over, and all of a sudden, there's a tree where there's Zacchaeus, and he stops. He came to the place. What is the place? This is the place. It's the intersection of Jesus' presence and your pursuit. The place is the intersection of Jesus' presence and your pursuit. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. Jesus came right to the place where they intersected, and that's the place. It's the intersection. Jesus' presence in your pursuit. Now see, there's some of you here today that when you came in, you may be pursuing Jesus, but there are others of you that maybe you said, I'm not pursuing Jesus, but I do know what you are pursuing. And that is that all of us pursue it. It's called acceptance, purpose, hope, forgiveness, love, mercy, grace, and only Jesus Christ can give all of these things to you. And as you're pursuing those things and you have those questions in your life, there'll be that place where it's the intersection of the presence of Jesus in your pursuit. Because he is the one that holds the key to every one of those things that you are pursuing. And when you come face to face with the reality of Christ, all of a sudden you see, my pursuit has an answer. He came to the place, but then there was the unexpected look. Not only did he come to the place, but then he said he looked up. He looked up. He came right to the place, and then he looked up. It was the unexpected look. I mean, Zacchaeus went to the parade looking for Jesus, but he never imagined that Jesus would be looking for him. That was unexpected. Now, he knew he would see Jesus. He felt pretty confident. If I could get up on this tree, I can see Jesus but he had no idea that Jesus was going to look back at him. And that was the unexpected look. I didn't expect this. And then the unexpected look went to an unexpected invitation when Jesus calls him by name and he says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down. I'm going to have a meal with you today. It was the unexpected look. There's no way I was expecting anything like that. I'm just going to look at him from a distance, but now all of a sudden we're getting close to face to face. And see, there's some of you that came this morning, and just as Zacchaeus could get overlooked in a crowd, you thought for certain in a large church that you could get overlooked. You could just sit back here and sort of hide in the group. 
And sure, when you came, you expected to hear something about Jesus, but to know that this Jesus who is being talked about is now somehow stirring your soul and is stopping and looking at you and inviting you to come into a relationship with him, well, that was just totally unexpected. Jesus came to the place today, March 11th, in this worship center. This is the place. This is the intersection of Jesus' presence in your pursuit. It's not by accident that you came today. It's not by accident that this message was preached today. But right here, this was the intersection. The things that you have been pursuing of purpose and love and hope and forgiveness and mercy, all of these things that you have, the intersection is today. And today, you are like Zacchaeus sitting in a tree and you're watching Jesus pass by. And he's looking at you right now and he's offering you an invitation to come and step into a relationship with him. This is his offer. And you got two choices. You could stay in the tree, not say a thing, not come out, and just let him pass by. You know, the scary thing about that is that Zacchaeus, if when Jesus looked up to him, if he just said, nah, I can't do that, I'll get you later. There was no later. Because Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, he was going to die on a cross, and after he died on a cross and was raised from the dead, I mean, there was no face-to-face with him any longer. And what we discover with people is that God's Spirit seems to come at certain times and tries to intersect our lives And we push him off, we push him off, we push him off until finally there will come a time where our heart gets hardened and we don't even hear the call anymore. But we had that opportunity. And today is where you have that opportunity. At that intersection of Jesus' presence and your pursuit, it's the place, it's right here, Shades Mountain, March 11th, this is your day. And that is why Jesus looked at him and he said, hurry and come down. Now I'm going to ask you to do something for almost all to bow our heads, close our eyes for just one moment. And if you are in that position, I'm going to ask you to do this for me. If you're ready to ask Jesus to come into your heart, I'm going to give you a simple prayer. And I'm going to encourage you to pray this to yourself, to the Lord. Heavenly Father, today... We have uh, people that have come here that are part of this service that have been pursuing, pursuing you, and some don't even know they've been pursuing you. But what they've been doing is they have been pursuing a purpose and a hope and a love and an acceptance, and they know that there's something missing in their life. And so I pray right now, Father, that as you touch their heart, that you'll help them to make that decision to receive you. And I would ask them at this time, just praying to yourself, you're praying to the Lord, but silently, and say, dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died for my sins. And today, I want to ask him to come into my life. And I want to start a new life. I want a life that is lived for you and lived for your purpose. Thank you for answering my prayer and for giving me strength to live today and to give me the assurance that one day I will be in heaven with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, look up for just a moment. If you prayed that prayer, 
He says, Jesus came into your heart. So there may be some of you here that are walking down that road. Let me talk to you about the rest of us. The rest of us here as believers, there are, as Christ followers, I want to challenge you to give an unexpected look to the world that's all around us. Because you see, there are those who are not believers, and in today's culture, whenever you mention Christian, and especially if you mention Southern Baptists, they will sit there and think you're like the crowd in verse 7. And the crowd in verse 7 were the ones that grumbled because this lost guy that Jesus was speaking time with them, and they were ones that were constantly judgmental of Zacchaeus. And we don't need to be that group. We need to be the ones that give them that unexpected look. And see, I am so glad that Jesus didn't use a crowd standard with Zacchaeus to where as he walked and all the crowd grumbled and said, you don't want to spend time with that guy, don't spend with that time. And then Jesus just passed by and Zacchaeus had no life-changing experience. See, what we need to be is we need to be the ones that as we're going and we see those, the marginalized or, or those that everyone else shuns, that we give them that unexpected look because they're not expecting it. They're not expecting it. And for us to give an unexpected look to them to say, listen, I want to let you know I love you and God loves you. And because I love you and God loves you, I want to give you some great news. And whenever people see that you can be authentic with them, and it doesn't mean that you condone lifestyles that are not biblical, what it does mean is I understand that you have been created in the image of God and you're valuable to God and you're valuable to me. And so I want to share with you good news, or I want to put my arm around you and help you through a hurting time. I want to maybe help you in a financial situation, or I just want to be there for some counsel with you. Or maybe I've walked through something similar to what you're going through, and let me kind of walk with you. And then all of a sudden, the defenses begin to drop down, and they said, wow, I never expected you to do that. That was an unexpected look. I never thought you'd even look my way. But we do look that way. And then we began to build those friendships, and then those uh, defenses drop down, and then the gospel becomes real. And their hearts are opened up, and they say, you know what? There's an openness there to see what God is saying to my heart. And then they'll hopefully make that decision, receive Christ into their heart. And then we can say, just like Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Because Jesus is today what he was then. He's seeking to save the lost. And the lost are there. And what we need to do is give those unexpected looks, the things they weren't even expecting us to do, and share that love with them, and then be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Father, thank you so much for the challenges you give us in your word. And I pray for us that are believers here, that, Lord, that, um, that we would uh, give those unexpected looks, that we wouldn't be a part of the verse 7 crowd that was always grumbling and being judgmental, but yet we would be like Jesus. And we'd give that look and that invitation and to tell all people about the good news of Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.